Hey everyone, so glad you are joining us for this service. Even though we are socially distancing, we are spiritually connected. And experiences like this are one way that we can continue to see that that happens. Um, not, not being able to meet together doesn't stop us from being a church family, from caring for each other in need and for praying for each other and bearing each other's burdens. I mean, this crisis has really become an opportunity for us to be the church in a creative way, to excel in loving other people. I was talking with someone the other day who, who, who said to me, I've talked more to my neighbor in the last few days than I have in the past few years. Um, his neighbor is an older widow and, she, and he's been checking in on her to see if she needs anything from the grocery store or whatever. I mean, what an amazing opportunity we have to love people around us. I mean, there is so much fear and panic right now. Um, and in the midst of that, there's a natural tendency to kind of want to cling and to, you know, to, to hoard. Um, but what, what a powerful opportunity we have to go against that trend in our culture and to exude peace and generosity. So let me, let me pray for our hearts in the midst of all we're going through and, and just as we prepare our hearts to receive and, and hear this, this message. So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your presence with us in the midst of all that is happening around us. And we pray that you would fill us with your peace. We pray that you would fill us with your love, that we would love others well. We would be the church that you're calling us to be, Lord. And we pray right now you would soften our hearts, you would open our eyes to your word, and you would teach us. So I pray that you would fill me now, Holy Spirit, with your message for your people. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we started a teaching series on the Bible, and the premise for this series is the reality that more and more people, even Christians, are, are disengaging from the Bible. More and more people, especially young people, are finding it increasingly difficult to reconcile some of the things in the Bible with their understanding of life and, and goodness. I mean, how, how do we trust a Bible that on one hand talks about a loving God and, and, and how we're to love people, and yet on the other hand contains passages that seem to encourage violence or slavery or polygamy or that devalue women? How do we reconcile certain scientific evidence that seems to point toward a very old age of the earth with the creation account in the Bible. These are very real, legitimate questions that many people wrestle with, and unfortunately, many are abandoning their faith entirely. Now, I gotta admit, with the onset of this coronavirus, I seriously considered postponing this series, this teaching series, but then I thought, this is exactly what we need to be talking about. This is exactly what we need to be talking about because as we're gonna see, the Bible can offer us incredible hope and strength and perspective in the midst of a pandemic like we're in. But the key issue is how we approach the Bible. See, this is where I think many people take a wrong turn. Many Christians have mistakenly understood, um, have a mistaken understanding of what the Bible is and how we are to approach it, which has created this proverbial 
house of cards where one legitimate question or contradiction or difficulty in the Bible causes our, our entire faith to collapse. But it doesn't have to be that way. There is a way to approach the Bible and acknowledge all of its difficulties and complexities and yet not have our faith threatened but actually strengthened. That, so that, again, that's, that's really what this series is about. How do we approach the Bible in such a way that we're not embarrassed by it or feeling like we have to d- disengage from it, but instead we actually fall in love with it? We fall in love with it. Our lives are transformed by it. So how do we do that? Well, we do it in a very counterintuitive way. We do it in a counterintuitive way. Instead of focusing first on the Bible, we focus on Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. And here's what we often forget about Jesus. Jesus loved the Bible, which is our Old Testament. He taught from it, he quoted it, he trusted it, he leaned on it in times of difficulty. He based his life on it. In fact, I want to read again a quote from Andrew Wilson that really helps frame up this discussion. He writes this, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered, or my answers remain unpopular. See, that's the foundation that we're operating from. If Jesus loved and trusted this book, then we are too as well. So when we look at how Jesus approached the scriptures, we discover some powerful insights that can help us know how to approach the scripture, especially with the the questions and the the things that we're wrestling with. So, So last week, we looked at a foundational way that Jesus approached the scripture, and that is through the lens of story. The lens of story. Even though the Bible is this library of writings collected over several centuries, written in different cultures and different languages, Jesus viewed the Bible as a unified story with him at the center. So everything in this story points to him and, and, and is still unfolding, which has huge ramifications for how we approach certain difficult passages in the Old Testament, for instance. So if you missed last week's message, I encourage you to, to listen or, to it or watch it online. Today I want us to look at a second way that Jesus approached the Bible, and that is as the inspired word of God. So look with me in the book of Mark, chapter 12, beginning in verse 35. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So Jesus is teaching in the temple courts, And he is doing so from a passage in the Bible, a specific psalm of David. And notice how he talks about this passage of the Bible. He says in verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared. 
See, Jesus is acknowledging that this Bible passage that he was, he was quoting, it has a divine and a human origin. Jesus says David himself speaking by the Holy Spirit. This is actually a cooperative effort between David himself and the Spirit of God, and the result was Scripture. Now, the Apostle Paul articulates a similar idea in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where he writes, all Scripture is God-breathed. See, what, what, what both Paul and Jesus are describing is how this book is inspired by God. What that means is that God breathed his spirit through a human being, and the result was Scripture. So the Bible is both a divine and a human book. But unfortunately, Many of us lose sight of this dual reality when we approach the Bible. Many of us tend to focus, many Christians in general, many of us, we we tend to focus only on the divine aspect of the Bible, which leads us to embrace what one scholar describes as the golden tablet view of the Bible. This idea that the Bible was sort of dropped down to us, you know, from heaven in written form, the dictated words of God to us. But that's not how the Bible came to us. The Bible came to us over a period of several centuries when at various times people started to write down things that God said or that God was doing. The first time we see this in the Bible is in the book of Exodus, chapter 17, where the Israelites, they won a particular battle and God tells Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered. So this is the first time the Bible talks about something actually being written down. God commands Moses to write down this story so that people later could remember it and celebrate God's deliverance, celebrate what God had done. Well, then a few chapters later, in Exodus chapter 24, God again instructs Moses to write down something on a scroll. Only this time, what he wanted Moses to write down were the details of the covenant that God was entering into with them. You know, the Ten Commandments and, and other laws that would distinguish the people of Israel from other nations around them. So we see things being written down as a way to remember the story of what God has done, and to receive instruction about God's ways. Well, then later in the Old Testament, we see certain prophets, like Jeremiah, who who was told by God to write down his prophecies. And, and, And there were other examples like that of prophets. And so what happened over a long period of time was that all these these writings from all these different people got collected and put together in one place, which became our Old Testament. And then, after Jesus lived, other writings began to happen, including eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life, and, and, and Matthew, Mark, you know, Luke, the, the, the Gospels. And then there were the letters of the, apostle, the apostles Paul and, and James and, and John, which became our New Testament. So the, so the Bible did not descend to us from heaven as one book. It is a library of ancient books collected over centuries. And these books were all written by humans in whom God breathed. So the Bible, again, the Bible is both human and divine. Now, if you're interested in how these manuscripts were were kept together and and how they were passed on to preserve their, their accuracy, 
I highly recommend an amazing guy and Bible geek um, named Tim Mackey. He has a podcast entitled Exploring My Strange Bible, which is really good. And you can scroll down on that podcast and find a a three-part series he did a few years ago entitled The Making of the Bible. It's really, really helpful and informative. And speaking of Tim, he and another guy created this website called The Bible Project, um, which has several four to five minute, very creative, animated, engaging videos on various themes and books in the Bible. That's the BibleProject.com, BibleProject.com. You can find it there. And, and it includes a video that deals with some of the questions we're talking about here, how we got the Bible. These videos are f- fantastic. Um, I encourage you to check out that website. Okay, so back to the issue at hand. Jesus and Paul both embrace the idea that the Bible is a divine and a human book. But often our tendency is to only focus on the divine side, which can create some challenges for us in terms of how we approach the Bible and how we think about the Bible. Okay, for, let me give some examples. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 and chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul writes these words. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Okay, what do we do with this? I mean, this is God's inspired word, and yet Paul is saying, I can't remember who I baptized exactly. I can't remember if I baptized anyone else. I mean, was God sitting up in heaven shouting, no, Paul, no, 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 don't, don't write that. I know how many people you baptized. You know, I, I know, don't, don't, don't say that you don't remember. That will make me look bad. No, 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 God wasn't doing that. God is completely comfortable with the humanness of this book. He, he chose to write this book through humans who have limitations, The people who are writing these words are doing so from their own humanity and their own personality and their own worldview and their own perspective and culture. And yet God is breathing into this. Again, it is both a divine and a human book. Here's another example from Paul. In his letter to Titus, Paul is talking about false teachers who are preaching a gospel that requires certain Jewish requirements. So Paul then says, one of the Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. I mean, Paul is wholeheartedly agreeing with someone who said that people from the island of Crete are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Now, as of 2018, there are over 600,000 people living on the island of Crete. Are all of them liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons? The Bible says they are. I remember this bumper sticker from the 80s. The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, as we see here, it's not quite that simple. I mean, we can all agree on what the Bible says. Even atheists can agree on what the Bible says. The key issue is not what the Bible says, but what the Bible means. 
We have to accurately interpret what the Bible says or we will start making it say things it doesn't intend to say. We're gonna talk more about that next week. My, my point is that all people from Crete are not lazy gluttons, even though the Bible says they are. So what do we do with a passage like this? Well, we remember that the Bible is inspired by God through humans. And so we try to get into the mind and the personality of Paul to understand what he actually meant in saying this. Now we know from the context that Paul was pretty ticked that these false teachers were bringing false teaching in. And we also know from other writings of Paul that Paul at times had a pretty sharp sense of humor. And so in this passage, we realized that Paul started to get kind of animated and sarcastic and used a bit of exaggeration to get his point across, which is totally fine and acceptable. We can read this passage without feeling the need to defend what Paul is saying or having to conclude that all Cretans are lazy gluttons because the Bible says they are. Again, this has huge ramifications for us in how we approach so many of the difficult passages in the Bible. We actually do a disservice to the Bible when we project our Western worldview onto the text without trying to understand what the author, the, the, the author, the original author was intending to communicate in their original context. So let's look at, at an example from the Old Testament. Psalm 137 ends with these words. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is in the Bible. So how do we respond to this? The Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. No, I mean, is it ever God's heart that innocent children's heads get smashed against rocks? No. Well, how then can this be God's word? Well, again, we have to look at what was going on in the mind and the heart of the writer of this psalm. So when, you, when we look at the context of this psalm, we find out that this psalm was written when Israel was in exile and being mistreated and persecuted and mocked by the Babylonians. I mean, this writer had probably seen his friend's daughters raped by Babylonian soldiers. This writer had, had seen fellow Jews murdered for sport. So this poem, this song, was written out of this place of righteous anger and untold grief, where the psalmist is just expressing his raw, authentic heart to the Lord. He's expressing to the Lord his raw, authentic heart. And notice, God has no problem with this. God, he, he has no problem with this. God is not up in heaven, you know, wringing his hands saying, oh, please don't say that, that will make me look bad. No, no, he, God is not sending angels to secretly edit the scrolls in the middle of the night. No, God is perfectly comfortable letting his people tell the story from their vantage point, from how they feel and how they see reality. And it is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. It's, it's very much like the incarnation of Jesus, Right, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Both of those are true. So his divine nature makes us want to worship him and his, his humanity makes us feel more connected to him. 
And the Bible is the same way. Because it is divine, we, we have the very words of God in our possession, which is awesome. But because it is also expressed through human instruments, we can connect to, connect with the rawness and the unpolished nature of the Bible and not be embarrassed by that. I mean, God seems perfectly comfortable allowing Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes to rant about how meaningless life is. God seems perfectly comfortable including in this inspired book the prophet Jeremiah cursing the day he was born. God seems very comfortable, you know, including in this inspired book Job's friends giving Job really lousy advice based on their misunderstanding of God's word and his ways. <laughs> I mean, see, the Bible is not embarrassed to reveal the messiness of our humanity, and we shouldn't be embarrassed by it either. Do these things make the Bible, these things we're talking about, do these things make the Bible less trustworthy or, or less inspired? No. In my mind, they actually make the Bible more trustworthy, more inspired. Because they, show how, because they show how much God validates our struggles and our weaknesses and our personality quirks and our emotions and all the other stuff of life that we experience. I mean, often people who publicly criticize the Bible, they're approaching the Bible as if it is this sterile, neat and tidy rule book that just dropped from the sky. But it's not. It's not, it was never intended to be that. And thank God it's not that. That's not what we need. That's not what we need, especially in the midst of, of this crisis that we currently find ourselves in. We don't need some sterile book filled with rules dispensed from a distant deity who just wants us jumping through his hoops. No, what we need is exactly what the Bible is, this raw and authentic description of real people many of whom were in the midst of struggles and were just trying to figure life out and wondering where God was and how he was working. And God chose to breathe through them to create this beautiful and complex and mysterious and life-giving word that points us to Jesus, that helps us as we try to figure life out. And as we are wondering where God is and how he is working in the midst of this pandemic. You see, God invites us to love this book the way Jesus loved this book and to have our lives transformed by it. Now, before I pray, I wanna give you an opportunity to practice what we're talking about. I mean, given the uniqueness of this situation right now where many of you are sitting at home, I want to invite you to engage in a specific Bible passage. In fact, it would be really cool if you could do this right now with your family or friends or just by yourself, whoever you're watching this with. It's a passage that speaks to us in our current situation, but it was originally written by a person who was experiencing a different kind of crisis. So the passage is Psalm 3. Psalm 3. It's only eight verses long. 
But in the intro to this psalm, what makes it kind of unique is that in the intro to this psalm, we learn the circumstances that David was in at the time of him writing this. So we learn that his son Absalom, whom David loved, had over a period of a few years spread among the people false rumors about David, about his dad, sort of like a virus of negativity that was being spread. And, and Absalom ended up stealing the hearts of the people. So then Absalom pulled, put, an, put an army, pulled an army together and rebelled against David, forcing David to actually leave his palace, to leave Jerusalem and flee for his life. That's the context in which David is writing this psalm. So as you read this psalm, I want to invite you, before you try to, what does this mean to me? I want to invite you to begin by first exploring what David was experiencing in his humanness. Put yourself in his context. What emotions was he experiencing? Betrayal, fear, worry about the future. And then in the midst of that, what attributes of God was he leaning into? What attributes of God was he relying upon? So once you have put yourself in his shoes and in his mindset, then let these words from Psalm 3, let those words speak to you in your situation, in our situation. What is Jesus calling you to do in the midst of your fear about this virus, in the midst of your worries about the future? Then Take those things with you, whatever he speaks to you, take those things with you in your heart. So the next time fear starts rising in you as you see the stock market you know, plummeting or, or you, know, you hear the latest news about the spread of COVID-19 or whatever, as, as fear starts to stir in your heart, you can choose to turn to this passage again and let it stir and re-stir in your heart trust and hope. I mean, what a crucial and transformative opportunity we have in these days to engage with God's word. Letting God use his word to provide help and strength for us in our time of crisis. So I'm gonna pray, and then I encourage you to feel free, hit the pause button if you want, and process this psalm for a few minutes. And then when you're ready to, to worship with our team, just hit hit play again. So let me, let me pray. God, we acknowledge how much we need you. We need you. We acknowledge our fear. We acknowledge our feelings of panic and anxiety and worry about the future and about our finance, all sorts of things. We acknowledge all of that. And God, we thank you for your word to us that gives us help and hope in the midst of this situation that we find ourselves in. So we ask you to speak to us from your word, continue to speak to us from your word. Holy Spirit, we ask you to fill us as we worship you. In Jesus' name.